I'm reminded of an occasion when I was <coughs> chairing a session in Australia and the gentleman from India came rushing in at the last moment and asked me if uh, I would allow him to give this presentation uh, even though he'd forgotten his slides in New Delhi. And uh, it was in such a rush that he couldn't get his slides together. So I said, well, that, that's, that sounds okay. Uh, I'd like to draw his slides, he said. So at the end of 20 minutes, he was still drawing his first slide. <laughs> <laughs> People had great difficulty interpreting exactly what he was talking about. So let me be quite clear that the topic is why is Matthew the first gospel? And I don't promise to answer this question unambiguously, but I do have some intriguing uh, thoughts and suggestions that came out of a very important Bible study group that's been meeting since October here on a Friday at lunchtime. And some of them are here. They're wonderful young ladies. And uh, although they may not be young in years, <laughs> young in spirit, and it's been a, a wonderful experience for me to hear from them and to share each other's perceptions of what Matthew is doing. And it's been a great pleasure. And in a sense, what I see this uh, occasion as being is a report to my board of directors. As you are the board of directors here, and uh, to actually indicate <coughs> some responsibility for and uh, accountability to you for what has been going on in this church uh, over since last October uh, on a Friday lunchtime. So please uh, be direct in your comments if I have, and we have, somehow distorted uh, the message of Matthew, then we need your uh, prayer and, uh, and your forgiveness. Let us open with a word of prayer. We ask our Father for your presence and the guidance of your Holy Spirit that everything that we may say and do and think is in accordance with your word and that you would guide us, O Lord, our Creator and Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I did bring some slides. But I didn't bring my projector, so I should pass this around for your uh, enjoyment. It is possible to see something here. There's a, an overhead showing four images of the four gospel writers. And uh, just to help you along... The person we're talking about, or the gospel that we're talking about, is that of Matthew. And as you move through, you'll see that there are certain uh, symbols associated with each of the gospel writers. And you can see that associated with Matthew is a human face. By contrast with Mark, who's associated with a lion's face, and Luke, who's associated with an ox and John, who is associated with an eagle, for reasons that you may or may not be familiar with. But the human face associated with Matthew is important in terms of our discussion of why 
he is the first of the gospel uh, in the New Testament. If you'd like to take a look at it, uh, it's, uh, I'm sorry that it's not so clear uh, as it might be, but it's a start. Now you may never have thought about this, and I'm told by scientists that it's inappropriate to ask the question why. <laughs> because science is unable to explain the why. So therefore this is not a scientific presentation, but it is an exploration into the circumstances that gave rise to the presence of Matthew's gospel at the first position. Why is this an interesting question? Well, we all know that Mark is the oldest source, and one might think that if one is thinking in the way that some of us do, historically or chronologically, that Mark should go first. We all know that John is the most visionary and the prologue to John's Gospel would seem to be an ideal way to start the New Testament. And we know that Mark is an enormous hurry as a <laughs> ravening lion to get on with the job of communicating the Gospel. Why wouldn't he be a more appropriate Gospel? Secondly, Matthew was a converted tax collector. Why would he gain primacy in comparison with a true apostle like John? Well, Matthew was an apostle and he was a, an evangelist, of course, of the first order. But John had those insights that are quite remarkable, uh, which we're dealing with in our Sunday services here at St. John's at the moment. And the intimacy of John uh, with our Lord is quite remarkable. So in a sense it's surprising that from a point of view of, of a human view, view of Matthew, why he should be at the beginning. And then the third reason why I was intrigued was that uh, as a book writer, I would like to start a book with something interesting and exciting to grab the attention of the reader. What we find in Matthew is a boring and lugubrious genealogy of the most extraordinary assortment of people. How is this book ever going to sell? <laughs> and yet it has primacy. So it seemed to me that it was an interesting question that we should ask. Why is he promoted in this way? Well, I'd just like to think in terms of two main uh, ways of getting at it. One is in terms of external evidence, which is the tradition of the church. And the other would be the internal evidence from inside the book of Matthew itself. So looking at the external evidence, it seems to me there are a number of ways in which one might look at this. Most interestingly, uh, and as you know, I'm not a scholar in this area, so there are those in this group who can correct me on this, but the most widely read and frequently used gospel 
in the formative years of the church was St. Matthew. According to Simonetti, who is a distinguished commentator on the early church, the faithful who lived between the end of the first and the end of the second centuries came to know the words and deeds of Jesus on the basis of this text. It was Jerome who, around 400 AD, established the sequence Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through his Latin translation of the Vulgate. Now, of course, it had already been in part accepted, but there was significant debate as to what the sequence should be before that year. And the reason for my passing this overhead about symbols around to you is because the symbols themselves were so important in the early church. If you imagine yourselves as unable to read, then the text would be of lesser importance than the symbols. And the symbols, in this case, were significant. The face of a human, which is, became associated with Matthew, signified the highest intelligence of the most intelligent created being. By contrast with the Lion of Mark, who was the most distinguished and most successful uh, strong animal by comparison with a ox who is the most strong agricultural animal and by comparison with the eagle which is the highest of the birds by contrast Matthew is the highest of the intelligent community. When we listen to Donald Trump, we wonder <laughs> whether their, their confidence was misplaced. But nevertheless, that was, that was the understanding <laughs> in the early church. That this was, and therefore, the association with the human, in the case of Matthew, was a point of high respect. And, interestingly, Matthew became seen as a great teacher and it, the gospel of Matthew has been said to be the teacher's gospel and I'd like to demonstrate in what ways that is the case uh, later on but just to make the point that the symbols associated with the gospel uh, writers or those the names associated with those gospels uh, has some significant significance in addition to the fact that the symbols themselves derive not only from general agricultural and <coughs> local myth, but from the book of Ezekiel, the great vision in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, verses 4 to 28, and the vision of St. John the Divine in Revelation, chapter 4, so the whole sort of association of these symbols with each of the, the Gospels uh, was very meaningful and it was so meaningful of course that any of you who have spent time visiting cathedrals in the other parts of the world will see these symbols uh, demonstrated both in, in the 
stained glass windows and in the sculptures associated with each of them. Now, of course, the other point is with respect to the, the traditional reasons external to the text is that there were only Mark, Luke, and Matthew as the, as the candidates for this first position. John was early eliminated in the sense that he was more recent than the others, and it was really a competition between Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Neither Mark nor Luke was an original apostle. Mark is best known for his abandoning Paul in Acts chapter 13, and Luke is particularly obscure, even though he wrote more than half of the New Testament, being mentioned by name only once. That is to say in Colossians chapter 4 in the New Testament. So that the the context that developed around Matthew's gospel was it was the teacher's gospel. Matthew was often referred to as the teacher of Israel. He was even compared to another Moses because of the way in which he moved around, uh, or Jesus moved around the River Jordan, the wilderness, and the mountain, all reminding us of the stories of Jesus, of Exodus, sorry, stories in Exodus. And so this is a distinctive feature of the way in which Matthew's uh, gospel was interpreted in the early uh, church community. I now have a spectacular overhead (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) And this gives, if I could pass this around, this gives the structure of of the gospel and which demonstrates in many ways why this is seen as the the teacher's gospel. The wonderful thing about what we have discovered in Matthew is the way that the the whole book is structured. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. But it is the most balanced statement of the alternation of narrative and of sermons of any of the Gospels. In other words, as you go from chapters 1 through 4, you have the narrative following the uh, genealogy I mentioned earlier, have the, the sequence of events in the first few years of Jesus' ministry, and then the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, is the first of the, of the big sermons. Then you have more narrative showing the healings that Jesus performed, the miracles, and then... There is a second sermon, chapter 10. And then you go on, sorry, chapter 8. After the... Oh, chapter 10, sorry. I can't do that, my overhead. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 10 is the second sermon. Then what happened in chapter 10? Anybody? 
Any thoughts on that? <laughs> I'll get my little notes here. So we have the the Sermon on the Mount is the first sermon, as we know, generally referred to as the manifesto of the kingdom. Then chapter 10 describes the mission of the kingdom. Chapter 13 describes the parables of the kingdom. Chapter 18 describes the nature of relationships in community in the kingdom. And then chapters 23 to 25 is this tremendously serious set of judgments Judgments on dead religion, judgment on Israel, judgment on the world, and the confident expectation of Jesus' return. So alternating between each of these sermons, we have the practical teachings, the practical activities of Jesus uh, in the society of the time. It gives a perfect balance in terms of teaching and application of what the Christian life is all about, as exemplified by our Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting that that doesn't exist in the other Gospels, but it's more systematic. It's less concerned about time sequences than, for example, Luke. And it is essentially a a statement that we need teaching and we need living in a balanced way. So very often, you know, people have latched onto the Sermon on the Mount as saying essentially that it's the it's the major thrust of Jesus' teaching, and therefore that's the that's the emphasis we should have. Another more somber interpretation is we should look at the judgments and hold on to the the judgments. Another says really it's the the miracles and the and the healings that are most important. What Matthew does is to balance these emphases uh, in a most impressive way. And, of course, the way in which the structure of the the gospel is put out, it starts with essentially a a loving, a very practical orientation with limited amount of judgment at the beginning, though not without their judgment. But gradually the controversies surrounding Jesus' presence uh, become more and more intense. And the way in which Matthew gathers this sense of the momentum and we come towards the the most critical period of the uh, prior to the the judgments in chapters 23 to 25, uh, we have a very extreme confrontation between the Pharisees, scribes, the elders, and Jesus himself. And of course, more and more we see they were determined to put him to death in a, in a sense which was, could really not have been envisaged from the first part of Matthew. It could be very difficult to see that that was going to be the outcome of the, of the gospel. So I'm not, again, trying to suggest that Matthew uh, is contradicting any of the other uh, gospels here. I think we've 
spent a lot of time, uh, at least in, in my youth, a lot of time was spent in saying, well, really, they're exactly the same, these Gospels, because we wanted to avoid the idea there was any conflict whatsoever. Uh, in effect, it seems to me that the more one sees of the differences, we get a great, greater sense of the personalities that are writing. We also get a greater sense of the many dimensions of Jesus' own personality. And if we think of this as the most pedagogic of the Gospels, that gives us one, one slant, one very important slant, on the character of Jesus and his ministry. And it's, uh, as I say, the most, it's the most easy to, thank you, the most easy Gospel, therefore, to generalize or to, to over, overview in this way. Now I should go on to the the internal uh, reasons that make Matthew's Gospel a good candidate for first of the Gospels. And these, of course, are by far the most important reasons. And if I were a theologian, I suppose I would emphasize the Christology of Matthew as being the most remarkable. My personal response is to say that as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is impossible for me to imagine a more appropriate first gospel. Even this strange genealogy, which is the first chapter of Matthew, is absolutely critical in terms of binding the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And I see some people nodding their heads who have obviously gone to great lengths to read and to, to think about the implications of this. And I just uh, draw on some comments uh, from Michael Green's book, The Message of Matthew, A number of women figure in the genealogy. That might not seem strange in today's climate, but it was startling in a Jewish genealogy. As you all know, Luke chapter 3 contains the proper genealogy with the line through the males, whereas Matthew's genealogy picks out specifically not only women, but also <laughs> women of strange repute. In both Greek and Hebrew culture, a woman had no legal rights. She could not inherit property or give testimony in a court of law. She was completely under her husband's power. Trust everybody pays attention. She was seen as less, a, less as a person and more as a thing. Of course, I'm quoting from Michael Green here. Not, this is not my... <laughs> <laughs> the Jewish man thanked God each day 
that he had not been created a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And yet, there are four women in Matthew's genealogy. And what women they were. Tamar was an adulteress, Genesis 38. Rahab was a prostitute from pagan Jericho, Joshua chapter 2. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was the woman David had seduced and whose first child had died, but through whose subsequent son, Solomon, the royal line was traced. 2 Samuel. Ruth was not even a Jewess at all, but a Moabitess. Can you imagine? (laughs) And Moabites and their descendants were not allowed near the assembly of the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 23. These are the women introduced into the genealogy to prepare us for the climax of them all. Mary and her unusual circumstances. Matthew could not have introduced a more amazing selection of women wherever he had looked in the pages of the Bible. Why did he introduce them? Well, this is the most extraordinary change that has occurred as between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The binding of the Old Testament to the New Testament in this way meant that we were looking to a new Israel. A new Israel that would include people of all ethnic backgrounds, both sinners of Gentile and Jewish background, and the door was to be opened to the whole world to receive the blessings that had been previously focused on Israel. So it seems to me this internal evidence, just from the very first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, is a a break in history. And it's a break in history that is then reinforced by the fact that Matthew actually uses 60 quotations from the Old Testament to demonstrate how those quotations from the Old Testament were fulfilled in the person, life, and death of Jesus. So you have this strange, to us, strange introduction, which is absolutely crucial to the binding of Old and New Testaments. And it just then presages the huge emphasis in Matthew on the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament in the life and person of Jesus these little gaps are meant for you to think carefully (laughs) (laughs) uh, yes (laughs) that's that's a common it's a common feeling. <laughs> so the, the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament is made straight away in the first chapter, the first uh, section. The fulfillment of Scripture continues right throughout the Gospel. 
And each sermon, each of the five sermons, makes the connection explicitly. The Sermon on the Mount first, the mission of the kingdom, the whole setup of the of the parables of the kingdom, the whole question of the uh, way in which the community of the kingdom was to grow, and the nature of the judgment, the five major sermons. So this bridge verifies that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, who had brought salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. The first verse, which says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, declares the author's purpose to establish Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the heir to the promises of Israel's throne through David and Abraham, and the church as the true people of God who transcend ethnic, economic, and religious barriers. So this uh, is, uh, for me, and I think for some of the good folks who have followed the, the gospel this year, the most important and distinctive feature of, of Matthew. I'm not suggesting that the Christology is unimportant, but I feel less comfortable in talking about the dramatic range of names given to Jesus in Matthew. It's certainly very interesting and very uh, very well explained in a number of contexts, but I think that I have been excited by the way in which the Old and New Testaments have been wrapped together. I should say that I have led and been at many Bible studies on Mark, Luke and John, but I cannot recall having been at a Bible study on Matthew. So for me this is really quite a remarkable uh, and exciting revelation. I'm not suggesting I hadn't read Matthew, but as you know, when you read late in the evening and your eyelids start to droop, <laughs> it's rather different than attending a full-scale uh, class. And so that is why I'm emphasizing what has been borne home to me as being quite unique to Matthew. Again, I'm not implying that there's not the same attempt made, but, I mean, Mark is in too much of a hurry to, to, to deal with that. And uh, Luke, of course, has got much more elaborate uh, stories to tell, uh, starting with uh, Zechariah, the priest, context of the ox, if you recall, the, the priestly sacrifice. And John, of course, makes the connection in an overview sense. He says, let's not worry about specific links from the last chapter of Malachi to the first chapter of Matthew, but let's look at the whole picture. And uh, in the beginning, says John. And he goes all the way through. He jumps, jumps over this particular hinge, this hinge point. Another aspect, jumping from 
the genealogy to the last chapter of Matthew is the fact that Matthew uniquely incorporates the Great Commission. None of the other Gospel writers incorporates the Great Commission. Right? It, it occurs in Acts as far as the, the rest of the Scriptures are concerned. So it seems to me that, again, the, 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 the tying in of the Old and the New Testament at the beginning and the moving forward to the Acts of the Apostles <coughs> occurs in Matthew 28 uniquely amongst the Gospels. So there's an overview that is rather different than the overview of John. But it pays attention to the links, what happened before the Gospel of Matthew and what happened after the Gospel of Matthew. It is a neat and a scholarly helpful thing from the point of view of the teacher of Israel. That he's really he's really wrapping the whole thing together. There are a couple of other things that are not as important, although for me personally, the unique emphasis on mountains in the Gospel of Matthew, please (laughs) forgive my uh, bias here, but uh, if you recall, the Sermon on the Mount took place on a mountain. Please tell me where. Anybody had any idea? Well, it's close to Capernaum, overlooking the Rift Valley, and uh, a dramatic overview, which undoubtedly helped to get the Sermon on the Mount across. What about the the Judgment Sermon? Where was that? sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, which is a clue. (laughs) 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 Now, that is a sign of unusual intelligence. (laughs) Did you hear the question? Where is discourse? So it's that kind of question that brings a class alive, isn't it? <laughs> but, of course, not, not those are not the only two places to think of the way in which the Mount of Transfiguration is uh, highlighted in Matthew. The sense, not suggesting that the study of mountains is necessarily the queen of sciences, <laughs> But that there is a certain advantage and a symbolism associated with the presence of Jesus on a mountain and the sense of authority. And again, that's a a principle that is extraordinarily well handled uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. The growth in his authority as the authority of the Pharisees declines and the tension between them becomes greater. It's just wonderfully handled in Matthew. Another interesting feature is the unique role of Peter in St. Matthew's Gospel. There are five occasions when, which are not recorded in any of the other Gospels, 
uh, of Peter's involvement with Jesus. They have to do with his uh, involvement in the walking on water and his, uh, his drowning, or near drowning. They have to do with his uh, denial. And uh, you find them in chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. In individual, uh, each, in each of those chapters, there's a reference to, to Peter's involvement, which is not duplicated in, in the other Gospels. So I can see that in the context of the early church and uh, the attempts to reinforce the authority of Peter, this would have some significant uh, value. Now I want to make mention of something that's a little bit unique to this, uh, to this particular Bible study group. We were fortunate enough to be able to listen to Johannes Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion. And it was a little bit out of sequence because it occurred, well, it occurred appropriately the week before Good Friday. But as far as our study was concerned, we still had a little ways to go. But this had a profound influence on several of us. The St. Matthew Passion, which goes just as far as the, the closing of the tomb. Let's read a, a, a little section uh, which is in this particular recording that we listen to, uh, sung by the magnificent uh, bass Dietrich Fischer Disco. Pilate said unto them, Ye have your watchmen. Go ye forth and secure the tomb as best ye can. So they went forth and secured the tomb with watchmen and sealed the stone. Now the Lord is brought to rest. My Jesus, good night. O blessed limbs, see how I weep for thee with penance and remorse, that my fall brought thee into such distress. My Jesus, good night. Take while life lasts a thousand thanks for thy passion, that thou didst prize my soul's redemption so dearly. My Jesus, good night. And the chorus, the final chorus goes, we sit, sit down in tears and call to thee in the tomb, rest softly, softly rest. Rest, ye exhausted limbs, your grave and tombstone. Shall for the unquiet conscience be a comfortable pillow and the soul's resting place. In utmost bliss, the eyes slumber there. This, uh, as you may well know, comes at the end of a three-hour recitation of the events leading up to the, the Passion. And as a profound reinforcement of the, the message of Matthew, this has to be one of the most extraordinary experiences. And I think uh, those who are present will agree with me that that was one of the highlights of our study. And it meant we, we, we felt we were kind of uh, connected 
in a broader sense not only the, the gospel itself but the the world into which Christ came which he came to save and which was had generated such extraordinary outburst of musical worship and talent so you won't find that in any of the standard commentaries about Matthew but it was one thing that, that we enjoyed enormously uh, in our study now I would like to end there to get some more feedback um, it's unconventional to end so early but it seems to me that it would be helpful to get some sense of whether I managed to get across the sense of the excitement and the, the newness for me, for me and for the group of Matthew I think it, it has not had the same priority in the contemporary church as it apparently did in the first few centuries It's certainly been the case of St. John since I've been here because in my Bible studies we've, we've, we've studied Mark, Luke and John and Acts mm-hmm. but uh, never Matthew yet I think that uh, that first chapter does tend to put one off mm. unless one looks inside it and gets a sense of why it's there but uh, certainly a, an uncomfortable read in a group But I'm not really, I'm, I guess I'm not trying to make the case that it's more important than any of the other Gospels. I'm just really addressing the question of, of why it's appropriate that it should be number one. And I think the hinge, the hinge point is critical here. And uh, so that there's no intention to have two Bible studies on Matthew for every one of Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I just have a comment. Uh, the uh, well, two comments. First of all, when you mentioned John, uh, I I thought of a huge fishnet because I became a uh, I came to the Lord in, in my adult years, and what was the first gospel that they I was part of studying was John. Yeah. I thought, why did we do John? But when you mentioned the genealogy story, mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I remember when I looked at that, and I thought, oh, this is a tough one. Yeah. But the other thing, as you mentioned the binding it together, my mm-hmm. uh, Joan sits here every Sunday and knits, as we learn. Right? Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, <laughs> what a beautiful analogy. What he's doing is he's knitting yeah. The Old Testament and the New Testament yeah. together, and he and because he's knitting it, I think the message to me in your presentation yeah. and in what I've learned in my Christian walk is he wants me to get it. He wants me to be bound to both of those. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That is just lovely. Well said. Yeah. 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 This lovely word, thank you. Binding. I, I always remember uh, Marcus Bockfield. I never heard this before before I heard him say it. That Matthew begins, is this the spirit whispering? The Matthew does begin the book of the genealogy. And John's gospel ends with the word, uh, that little uh, strange word. If all the books were written, that would be written about this man, the world couldn't contain them. Mm-hmm. And the spirit whispers, these mm-hmm. books belong together. 
I'm bracketing them, church. Here's a gift. I, I think such things are in Scripture, but uh, it's uh, only faith will believe these things. Did anybody in your group say, well, why are we asking this question? Did anybody say yes, that? Yes, yes, they did. And how yeah. did you answer? I said, uh, <laughs> it's a new, new question for me, <laughs> and it's a new question for us. And I answered it in terms of the fact that it's an intriguing question. And that uh, I'm not pretending to know the answer, but we did have a valuable discussion as to some of these points that I can bring out. I think it's a good question. Yes, sir. It's the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, this is a a recent awareness for me. And uh, Hebrews is is the other in the New Testament. And uh, so, duh, I guess, yeah, it it should have the first place in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who were the first converts? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the the uh, linking of of this with Hebrews, I think, is very helpful. I think that's that's, a, that's another very important link. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Who and when was it decided what order the gospel should be in? Well, it was a process <coughs> over three, four hundred years, um, and uh, I know Jim would have a clearer view on this than I, but uh, it's essentially the determination uh, of the church that by the year 400 that that was going to be the, the, the list. But of course there was a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, and as you probably know, for example, the Coptic church feels that St. Thomas' gospel should be part of the group and uh, there's a whole bunch of other gospels which were written at the time which were eliminated for lack of canonicity which is a, a nice way of saying we don't know why but we're just not convinced that they are at the same level of authority as the four <coughs> so I think Jim would you wish to add to that I don't think that uh, anything I can add would make things clearer. <laughs> but it is a fact that um, Jerome's work <coughs> as the translator of the whole New Testament meant that the order in which he passed out the books that he had put into Latin was a very weighty factor and uh, counted for anything more than, sorry, counted for more than uh, anything um, anything else in the story does. Um, I think it's that there are two stages here. Uh, one is that um, the authentic writings of apostles were being gathered that was uh, going on for the first 200 years actually Uh, they were being gathered and the spurious writings, gospels, epistles that bore apostolic names 
but which were not and were recognized as not being by the apostles whose names they bore. Um, that weeding out process, as I say, that took about 200 years. Uh, Jerome did his stuff in the 4th century. Uh, and in the 4th century, I think it's fair to say, the church as a whole uh, internalized the idea that the New Testament is a whole, uh, that is a collection of, uh, what is it, 27, 28, 27, 27, 27 books that belong together and throw light on each other and uh, form in a very profound sense the theological unity uh, that idea established itself pretty much in the church um, so Jerome is one of our saints uh, he appears on the, mm-hmm. on the UCP list of official uh, recognized saints yeah. do we know uh, where he came from? Mm-hmm. No, I wasn't asking you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so... Um, the story is like a, a snowball rolling and decreasing in size as it rolls downhill. That is, the more the early church got into the habit of treating the gospel, treating the New Testament books as a unity... Well, the more it got into that same habit, the habit became deeper and deeper and more firmly established. Mm-hmm. Which the point I want to make was that Jerome comes so, from Croatia, mm-hmm. which is an area which is not often acknowledged as a major source of inspiration, uh, although of course it was closer to the centre of things at the time, that Jerome uh, is a figure that sounds like it might be from the western United States. And I think a lot of people have no idea who Jerome was. And this extraordinary uh, action of translating the the Vulgate is something for which we need to be appreciative. Um, So I think that's the that's the point of my question. I think you provided us the the context. Well, the snowball continues to roll. Yeah. Modern. New Testament study. Uh, each of the books is constantly isolated from the others for detailed examination. You have commentaries on this gospel, that gospel, that epistle, and so on. But all of these gos- all of these commentaries are written against the background of this shared assumption that the New Testament is a unity and that you don't get it right unless you see it as a unity. Well, that's precisely the point. Mm -hmm. Well, it is my point. Mm -hmm. I'm just underlining it, which is what you asked me to do. (laughs) 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 Thanks. Thank you very much. (laughs) I think Byron was ahead of me, weren't you, Oh, no, I'm just stretching. (laughs) Stretching. I think in all the previous studies that I did with Matthew, the, the idea of proof texting was the way these quotations from the Old Testament were used. But I think from the point of view of andragogy, which 
some of you will recognize as a word that means adult education. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to pedagogy. Uh, it's, it's an excellent tool because the Jews would know the things he was talking about. So he was reminding them of these have an importance with regard to the Messiah. And the Gentiles, who didn't know the Old Testament at all, are encouraged to see the story of Jesus as part of a much bigger continuum. And I found that an interesting feature. I was in that little group of, of Olas, and let me tell you, <laughs> even people who have been studying the Bible since they were five, which is my experience, I learned a lot of new insights. It was, it was really great. And um, uh, we learned from each other as well as from all of she was one of the other leaders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. So, have you decided your group that uh, and there's a famous poster to this effect? But is Bach the fifth evangelist? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's just sheer good fortune and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I believe I happen to have a recording of this uh, wonderful piece of work. And it just seemed to fit uh, the mood of the, of the group. Yes, Thank you for a wonderful talk, Olava. I love the fact that you began with art and you ended with art. I was just meditating a bit on uh, what you were saying about the different Gospels having different personalities being written by different human beings and how God has used those stylistic differences in character of the men that wrote these things. And I, I never really thought too much about that. As an artist, of course, I was always really attracted to John because he was a crazy artist too, and it you know, <laughs> spoke to me. But um, Matthew, the analysis in Matthew, a tax collector, a bureaucrat, somebody who lived analysis, had to, um, applying that kind of a mind to, you know, these, mm-hmm. these amazing series of events is, is very, very specific, isn't it? It's a different facet that we need to flesh out. And I, I, I think that came through so, so yeah. well this morning. Thank you. Fascinating. Thank you very much. Yes, this is, this is uh, it's, it struck me in the context of um, re- remembering my teenage years, which is kind of difficult to <laughs> but this whole sort of emphasis on, on trying to just you know, hide any apparent contradiction by any, any different emphasis between the, the Gospels was the, the kind of sense I got from the context where I was living. And, and rather than saying the beauty of this is the whole revelation from four different perspectives on this one person, I mean, the greatest person who's ever lived. Can't have four different aspects. <laughs> no, that seems very odd. <laughs> but, but of course, it, it just meant we were limiting ourselves unnecessarily to a single dimensional Jesus instead of getting the sense of the four dimensions. And really, it should be an n dimensional Jesus. Well, some are falling asleep, so I don't know. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll return to the rolling st- snowball. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, what, uh, 
biblical scholars strike me as not wanting to uh, look at that uh, snowball a whole lot uh, uh, because it may uh, put too much authority into patristic into the hands of the patristic or even uh, the Roman Catholic Church and, and I remain uh, unrepentant Protestant but nonetheless uh, there is that rolling you know uh, rolling snowball over several hundred years, which brings to mind the question of the church and uh, the Holy Spirit and uh, decisions that were made while that uh, snowball was rolling. And uh, uh, and for biblical scholars, it, it t- at least Protestant biblical scholars tend to uh, not want to uh, deal too much with that. But maybe that's a misrepresentation. Of it's just, just from an amateur looking looking on from the sidelines, uh, uh, a question that, or, or an observation that I I, I see. Uh, but perhaps there are strong signs that we're overcoming that with the maturing of conservative scholarship, that there's more of a sense of the holism in the church, obedient to the revolution. Sure. Yeah.